Good afternoon, church. Praise the Lord. Hope you're having good conversations in your real groups about the foundations um, of our humanity. And I hope that you also are taking seriously what, what went wrong. Because we're trying to understand ourselves. We don't always do. We think we do, but we really don't. Especially if you reject the foundations and the beginnings, you will be fighting shadow boxing uh, with enemies that you cannot see, that you cannot touch, that you cannot feel. The Bible warns quite um, correctly that uh, we do not wage war as the world does because our enemy is intangible. We, we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is God warning us of a world we do not see. And sometimes we ignore as though somehow if we don't take cognizance of it, it will go away. It doesn't. There's warfare. We are at war. And if we understand the beginnings, then we start to piece together just how much went wrong and how this can be fixed. So we need to take the word of God seriously, the owner's manual, and, and to remember how we were meant to function and to operate. And if we do that, it will go well with us. Last week, we examined the fall. And, and the fall um, is a real fall. We were created from the dust, but we were meant to soar upwards towards our creator, to continue in glory and in eternity after the image of the one who made us. But after we disobeyed, after that incident, the greatest lie ever told, we fell downwards so that the mirror image, which was shattered and broken into a thousand pieces, eventually crumbles and returns to the dust where it came from. Something that was never meant to happen. And that is the reason of great pain, great sorrow, great sadness. There's not a week that goes by when this team of pastors here is not gathered in a home, condoling, sorrowing, grieving with one who has lost a loved one. It, it, it repeats with mathematical certainty. The greatest lie ever told. You will not surely die. Because die we do. And die we must. A disaster in the chapter of human history that cannot be erased, that we can't fix. Because nothing goes counter to the command of God. Of the day that you eat, you will surely die. The Hebrew is even stronger. It says, on the day that you eat of it, dying, you shall die. It's doubled with emphasis. And so we struggle with the pain of death. And every time we come to that brink, when another one of us, sons of the dust, returns to the dust we came from, there is untold anguish and pain and sorrow it resonates to the very core of who we are. Because somehow, even without being explained to, we know this is wrong. This was never meant to be. 
and we grieve over it as we hunker for what should have been and yet we are faced with the reality of what is what must be and so we must pay attention to what the author says regarding what can we do what has he done to fix this problem now by now we know that there is nothing that we can do at the mirror level to affect the image. There's nothing we can do. Because the mirror doesn't have anything of its own. So we must pay due attention to the author, the owner of the image, and how he proposes to fix this brokenness. Only he can. Only he can. At the very onset of humanity, after Eve, and I said creation must have stood at a standstill to see how the mirror would respond to this enticing new message from a creature, an unknown voice, a stranger, who comes and even contradicts what God says. Did God really say? He sows the seed of doubt, and Eve listens on, and the conversation unravels and unravels. And he contradicts God and says, no, he said you'll die. You won't die. Actually, the reason God doesn't want you to have this fruit is because there's much more than what he has told you. There's much more than what you have experienced. He knows the day that you eat it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve, buying the line, line who can sink her, so that the tree was good for food, desirable for gaining wisdom. The creature wants to be like the creator, the ultimate idolatry. And the enemy is enticing the woman with the same problem and the same kind of sin that he himself had fallen into. We'll look at that another time. When the serpent decides, I will raise myself above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. See Isaiah somewhere in chapter 11 or something. I'll read it one day. And he wants to entice the woman with the same level of idolatry. And she agrees to take and she eats. Then she gives some to the husband who was with her. He takes. Again, creation is waiting with bated breath to see whether the next half of the mirror will follow suit. And the dream and the hope and the and, and the aspiration is that, oh, mirror, mirror on the wall, please behave yourself like your image bearer. Respond as God would. Reject evil. Choose to believe the one who loves you and created you. Reject the proposal of this strange voice that wants to contradict me. But as he do that, he takes, he eats. And the story of humanity is rewritten right there in a disastrous way. A tragic, tragic end to a story that was so beautiful. The shalom of paradise is shattered beyond recognition. New vocabulary enters into human history. They hear the sound of the Lord God coming. They run and they hide. They are ashamed. For the first time they know shame. They realize that they are naked. 
and guilt will follow them. They look for a human solution, take fig leaves and sew it around so that they can cover their nakedness. A human solution to a problem that can only be fixed at a creator level. And we revert to that again and again, thinking that we can fix the image. We cannot. And until we start listening to the source of creation, then we are grappling at straws. We are groping in the dark. Fear enters into human history. And the conversation then that follows is God coming. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The fellowship was very different. They would hear God and run to him like innocent children, aspiring to spend time with God and to fellowship and to hear more knowledge infinite knowledge from this God who had created them, put them in an ideal setting, in a garden, taught them, loved them. But now they run away from him in dread and they hide from him. And the Lord comes and asks, where are you? And this, that has followed our history from hence, we run and hide from God. Even today, we hide from God, we hide from each other. And God is seeking us and saying, where are you? And he's not asking you to send him a pin so that he can locate you. That's not the question. He's saying, where are you emotionally? Where are you psychologically? I know you're out there. I know you're hiding. I even know what you have done. And you know what? You can't fix it. So God is waiting for a confession and you and I to say, here I am. I have messed up. Look at where I am. I'm in pain. I'm in anguish. Help me. But does he hear that? I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That's not breaking news, God is to say. I already know you did that. I'm waiting for a confession. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? This is a coaxing to get a confession. Have you eaten? Just say yes. I know you already have done that. Mm -mm. The man said, the woman, that one, who you gave me, who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. The struggle with Adam and also at the core of many marital problems is the inability of Adam to take responsibility. That's all that God was looking for. Adam, I gave you the command. I told you you will not eat. I hear you passed on the command to your wife. But where were you? Between the time that the conversation was engaged and it started to go south. And you heard the serpent begin to impute ill motive on me, your creator. 
and tell the woman that I was hiding something from you. Where were you? There is a deafening accusation against Adam because of his silence. His utters not a word is recorded from Adam's side. By the time the conversation is enjoined and it continues to the point where God is now the one who is on the, um, on the dock being questioned, God knows the reason he did not do this and do that. He doesn't want you to know this. He doesn't want to be like, you will be like God. Adam is silent. And when the action is enjoined, she takes and she eats and passes on to him. He's completely silent. He receives, he takes, he eats. Not a word of protest, not a word to do with, hey, by the way, don't you remember? This is what we are not supposed to do. At the core of many marital problems is the inability of Adam to step up to responsibility and say, this is not the direction that we're going to go. This is what is the right thing to do. And so this is what we shall do. He had many opportunities to stop the conversation. He did not. Of course, he had direct responsibility to reject the fruit when it was eaten. Never mind that he could also have intervened with Eve not to eat the fruit. He did nothing of that kind. And at the core of many problems is the inability of Adam to take responsibility. And I speak as Adam. So I too am among the species. Maybe some of you married people have been told by your wives, give us leadership. <laughs> you know. And sometimes we don't know what it means. There's deafening silence. The conversation between Eve and the serpent should never have happened, but it did happen. Her willingness to engage a foreign voice and then be led along and enter into conversation at one point, she should have known this is not going well. The minute the serpent called to question the character of God, at that point, that story should have ended. Hey, I don't think we're not going to have this conversation. There was ample opportunity to consult with Adam. There was ample opportunity to consult with God, who was present, as we see, who would come walking in the cool of the day. But the fact that she would enter into a conversation, be so absorbed and engaged to the point of deception, also tells you something about Eve. A big red flag for the species of Eve is the tendency to enter into conversations that are not useful. <laughs> I know you don't like me at this point. Those are two very dangerous things. The inability of Adam to take responsibility, the tendency of the woman to enter into conversation beyond what is useful and to fail to exercise discernment at what point this should stop. One of the stories that is told in scripture 
is um, of the ark of the covenant of the Lord that at one point is captured by the Philistines. And it was captured because there was a guy by the name of Eli or Eli. And, and what happened is that Eli's children were engaging in very bad behavior. They were supposed to be serving in the temple with him. They would come and grab the sacrifice that the Israelites had, had, had taken. And, and in, you know, it's, the meat is supposed to be boiled. They said, we are not going to accept boiled meat. We, are going to, we only want choma. Okay, they were Kenyans, all right? So no boil for us, for us, we are going to do choma. This is real, okay? And God was so incensed and angry with them. He asked Eli, why do you honor yourself and your sons above me? That you would treat my sacrifices with contempt? I had promised that you and your household will never cease to serve before me. But now, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who dishonor me, would be held in contempt. And at that word of judgment, because, in fact, for, for the little boy, his name was um, Samuel. Samuel took over uh, from, from, uh, from Eli. I want to find... So God begins to call a little boy to replace Eli because of his behavior. And what he tells this little boy is this. Um, and the Lord said to Samuel, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 3, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Very harsh judgment. And the accusation is very simple. Eli, you failed to take responsibility for the house of God and honored your son, sons above me. Because of the sin you knew about concerning your children, yet you failed to restrain them. I hold you responsible. And the disaster that, is followed, that followed is unparalleled. The Lord let the ark of his covenant be captured by the Philistines. Israel be defeated in war. Both his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's son, die. And these are priests. They're the ones who are supposed to intercede on behalf of Israel. Now they are dead. And Israel's army completely destroyed. Somebody comes and rushes to say how things have gone on at war. Eli hears this news. He's so shocked when he hears the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. He falls backwards. He breaks his neck. He dies. Phinehas' wife is heavy with child at this point. She receives the news. Ark of the Covenant captured. Your husband dead. Your brother-in-law dead. Your father-in-law also dead. She goes into premature labor gives birth to a son, and then she herself dies. Before she dies, she names him Ichabod. Kavod in Hebrew is glory. Ichabod is a negation of glory. 
meaning the glory has departed from Israel because Eli failed to take responsibility. So it's the root of many problems in society, including leadership, when they don't take responsibility. And as husbands, when we don't take responsibility for the direction that our homes should go. At the root, also, of many problems in the family is Eve's inability to restrain her tongue. A story is told. It was supposed to be a beautiful story. The Ark of the Covenant of God being returned to Israel after it had been captured by the Philistines. David is in celebration mode and he's rejoicing with great rejoicing and blessing the people of Israel. Then he will come home also to bless his family. But his wife, Micah, is unable to restrain her tongue. The Bible says that they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites. This is great generosity. Both men and women and all the people went to their homes, obviously blessed and rejoiced. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. I'm sure it wasn't said with dignity. Oh, ye king of Israel, you know how thou hast disguised dis yourself. She was like, how the king, you could even see the dressings coming out as, Conversations that are carried beyond where they should go. Inappropriate for the occasion. Of course, David answers Michal. He's also in reaction mode. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone uh, from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people in Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And then the judgment of God and Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. And I, I think that that tells you where that story was going. Of course, the blessing of children was supposed to be the blessing of God. The creator, I mean, the creator giving you the ability to create other images after himself. But God is unhappy, and so is David. I believe there should be a corrective to two, this, two of these positions. The corrective, obviously, is that Adam must take responsibility for both the good things and the bad things, because we do both equally. On this side of our fallenness, 
There are many things that we don't do right. There are many areas we should step up that we do not step up. At the same time, I think Eve's conversations can be more seasoned with salt. They can be more edifying and building rather than those that are destroying and humiliating. And this is at the core of our build-up as people. And it resonates all the way back to creation. And I believe there are red flags that we need to pay attention to as tendencies that we have as human beings. The serpent is cast above all other creatures. And it's a done deal. It's a wrap. Cast are you above all animals, above all wild animals, domestic. He's in a class of his own. Okay? And, and he's completely cast. There's no reversing it. And his place has been set out as damnation, eternal separation from God. A special place is prepared for him in hell. Unfortunately, together with him, are those that will follow him. And we'll be seeing that. Because there will be two kinds of humanity. Those who choose to be redeemed, to be corrected by the creator, to be shown, this is how it looks like to be normal. Okay? Because we now live in an abnormality. How Adam and Eve were created in the garden, that is being normal, completely reflecting the goodness of God, resonating in him and loving him. And we say the reason that is done is because God took the risk of giving humanity choice. He did not program us like the giraffe or the elephant to behave only a certain way. He left us unprogrammed because within ourselves is a software to resonate with God and reflect his glory. And we know when there is no choice, then there is no freedom. And if you don't have freedom, you cannot be human. And you cannot reflect your creator. If any of us suddenly learned that the reason that your spouse married you is because they had no choice, how good would you feel about yourself? What would that do to your self-esteem? Honey, why did you marry me? What do you mean? Yeah, yes, you married me. I mean, there was no one else. How would that sound like? The reason you feel affirmed is because out of all the others that he could have chosen, he chose you. Makes you special. Because there were other choices which he said, rejected, rejected, rejected. You are the one. And that gives you purpose and meaning and affirmation. The story is told of a young man um, this, this is the situation. It's the village chief. Of course, the village chief always has the most beautiful daughter, right? And everybody wants to marry this girl. But the king doesn't know. He wants to make sure that his daughter is very well protected and the person who comes is really, really loves her. Loves her. And so he says, I'm going to stage a competition. There will be some hurdles for you to scale. So this is what we're going to do. Everybody interested, go to that side. Then in the middle, my daughter and I will stay here but in the middle here, we're going to flood it with water and put crocodiles and hippos. If you think my daughter is worth it, you will cross this obstacle and come all the way at the risk of your life and I'll hand you 
my daughter's hand. There is a pro and clamor. This is not fair. This is too difficult. Who can do this? And you know, and people are saying, ah, this cannot be done. What, this, this kind of teaching has never been. A misapro, in the midst of nothing, this, somebody comes splashing. Through the water, crocodiles. Ah, snap, snap. But he makes it to the other end. Jumps over the barbed wire. And trembling and shaking and little bruised. But he's there. And the king is impressed. And he hands over the daughter. And congratulates this young man. He goes on and, and, and marries the daughter. It's a happy ending. He marries the daughter and they are happy. During honeymoon, they are, you know, um, causing up and talking. She's telling him, you're so crazy. How could you do that? You love me that much? He looks at her and says... I was pushed. <laughs> what did you expect? I needed to survive those crocodiles. There was such a crowd. So he found himself pushed. And he survived through the crocodiles. How affirmed do you think that girl felt? The question of choice is not negotiable. And that's the biggest risk that God took. He refused to program man and he gave him free choice. And that choice meant obeying him or disobeying him. But the only way he could mirror him is to choose to do what is right because God is morally good and God is love. He can never choose evil. And so his image to choose evil is countercultural. It's very, very abnormal what the original man and woman did in the garden. Against all possibilities, they chose the darkest and the most evil. Listen to the darkest and, and a voice that was strange. That was never God's voice. And because of that, we are alienated at three levels. We are alienated at a spiritual level, the disconnection between man and God. That was, that's the biggest disaster ever. We were never meant to operate without God. He's our GPS. He's our homing system that tells us how to behave. And without him, we're a ship in the high seas without a rudder. No wonder many of us will end up shipwrecked if you do not have God controlling your design and your direction and your purpose. But that disconnection is what God meant. On the day that you eat, you will surely die. They were actually physically alive, but they were spiritually dead at that point. And no wonder, after just some time, the inevitable would happen. The dust would return to the dust it came from. They were dead already. And until this is fixed, and it has no local solution, those fig leaf solutions are human solutions. They can never take us back to what we are supposed to be. And we walk with a void in our hearts. And we ask existential questions. Who am I? What am I? What is my purpose here on earth? You will never find your purpose until you find your purpose in God. He is the only one who created you. He's the only one who will tell you why you are here. Without God, your life becomes purposeless and your end becomes meaningless. You return to dust. A good story that ends badly. Spiritual alienation from our creator. It's not the only alienation. The next level of alienation is alienation from ourselves. We are fractured beings. 
like people with schizophrenia. We have split personality. We deny who we are. We have all kinds of psychological issues. We have self-hate. We go into depression, deep sadness, emanating from within. And sometimes it can de-escalate to the point of taking our own life suicide, the ultimate self-hate. Because I don't know who I am. I don't know what I am. I don't know what another am I doing here. I am disconnected from myself. And the ultimate disconnection is the ultimate abortion of life when I die and the soul tears from my body. The soul goes elsewhere and the body goes to the dust. The self is fractured beyond anything that we can comprehend. So when God said, you will die, or dying, you will die, this is what he meant. Not only are you disconnected from me, you're disconnected from yourself. You're trying to figure out who you are. Today, the biggest question is, who am I? Men are claiming to be women and vice versa. We can't, even our sexuality is messed. Self-identity, sexual identity confusion. And people are saying, Don't, never mind what your biology says. I identify as a woman. Even a hundred years from now, your DNA will still say you're a man or you're a woman. But the problem is deeper. It's disconnection from self. Loss of direction and identity and personality. The third level of alienation is social. Man against fellow man. In the next chapter, it records the first murder ever. One brother murders another one. Kills him. Alienated from your fellow man. We were meant to have come from the same, same raw material. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Today we hear husband killing wife. And vice versa, murder. Complete social alienation. The history of humanity is replete with wars and battles and all kinds of problems. Genocide. Are people deciding to eliminate another race just because they can? This is the death God was talking about and saying, you're no longer normal. You're not okay. And unless you let me in, when he asks, where are you? Unless I can come in and fix you, you will not be well. And you do not have it within yourselves to fix the mirror. It is shattered beyond any recognition. Only I who created it can fix it. No one else. Because the founder of the human race messed up beyond anything that could have been imagined. And now it will take the creator to send the second Adam to refound again the human race. Press the reset button. Finish the work of God. And then give that as a gift to the new humanity who will accept to follow his way. Now this humanity can be recalibrated once again to respond to the creator because they've been given a demonstration by the second Adam how life was meant to be, what it meant to be normal. When you look at Jesus Christ 
as he walked the earth and as he talked and anything he did. That's what it means to be human. That's what it means to be normal. It's to do what God wants us to do, to respond as God would. He was normal. We are abnormal. Unless he fixes us, we cannot be fixed. We are damaged goods beyond help unless by his redemption. We need to take this seriously because if you don't understand the problem, you will never appreciate the solution. Only he can give the solution that is adequate and equal to us. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. We'll continue from there next week.